0: Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may, by you, be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the Collect for today, August the 8th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing in the Revised Common Lectionary today, and we're in Psalm 130, 2 Samuel 18, 5-33, Ephesians 4.25-5.2, and the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, verse 35, to set the context, and then verses 41-51. to Thanks for being along today. Um... Just so you'll know, we've had kind of an interesting week. Last week, we, uh, we were hiking at the—walking, really, at the North Carolina Arboretum. The three of us were, me and Suzanne and Will, and and suddenly we were waiting on her because we walked faster, and so we we're, were just hanging out, waiting on her to catch up with us. And um, he looked at me, and he said, Dad, I can't stop this tremor thing that's going on in my right hand. At about that time, it, it pulled up involuntarily alongside his body and it's his left hand and, and it see if you're old enough like me you'll recognize the reference I'm making here it looked like Joe Cocker when he was singing and so I was able to to get hold of him and control of him and um you know he's a big guy he's six one and about 205 and so and then he's seizing against me and I was able to get him to the ground and, and get um get him to the ground safely and softly and then um after after the sort of not violent that would be a, a too strong a word but but after the seizure activity had uh, ceased I was able to get him onto the ground I held him up until then because I was afraid he might hurt himself and um, so got him to the ground and, and he'd been chewing gum so I had to get that out of his mouth and give him mouth to mouth in the meantime Suzanne's gone and, and run along and they have a security um group there at the arboretum so they have call boxes along the way and so she was able to go to a call box and call them by the time she got back i had already called 9 and and gotten them to be there well the the security guard showed up great guy really uh, comforting presence and all that kind of stuff he, he was able to spend time talking with suzanne while i was sort of getting will back you know together <laughs> and um he said he'd been praying for us all the way down there as soon as he got the call. And it was like, that, that's such a blessing, brother. And about that time, the uh, Skyland Rescue showed up. And, and when they did, I looked up and saw the guy driving and thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. it's Anthony. And so it's a guy that I've known for about 10 years. He's married to a sister of a friend of mine who's a pastor. And we used to, in fact, our churches used to have worship services together from time to time. And so I've known Anthony a long time, and I know that he's a solid believer. And so it was a real blessing. And then I found out later because he told me that he used to work out with Will. uh, And Will didn't work out with hardly anybody. And so they've known each other a while, and so everything's fine. They did CAT scans and blood tests, and everything was, was perfectly fine. So there's not something to worry about. They said it's just sort of a common thing that happens in recovery from traumatic brain injuries, and, and it should just go away naturally over time as his body readjusts. Uh, also went uh, Thursday and had 108 staples taken out of his head. I mean, can you imagine that? It's crazy. I didn't sit in there and watch, by the way. Um, but, but we've had a good and busy week. Um, So I'm excited to to be here today and and be talking about this. Just so you'll know, the daily podcast follows the the daily lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer. And the the Sunday podcast, I'm using the Revised Common Lectionary, which is used by multiple denominations. And it was put together in an attempt to to get Christians thinking about the same lessons at the same time. And so sort of have one mind. and so I've been using that because it's just I had preached the others for so many years that I decided to do this. Well, the, the issue is, though, that that during the season we're in right now, the, the Old Testament lesson, um, I've already actually done the podcast that, that deals with this lesson. Uh, and I work a little bit ahead on those daily ones just because I don't know that I can always have time every day to do that. And I want to get them out early in the morning. So I work ahead so that this this. Old Testament lesson I've already dealt with. You haven't heard it yet, if you listen to the daily podcast, because I'm not there yet. I mean, as far as it being queued up, it's there and waiting to drop, but we just haven't got there in the daily lectionary yet. So what it is, is after the revolt of Absalom and after uh, David's army has triumphed over Absalom and Israel out in um, the area of Ephraim, um, the he was he, David ordered... Uh, the three people that he had set as commanders of his army, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Etai, who were all cousins, he told them, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And so the people all heard when the king gave those orders. So not just those, he didn't give them in private, he gave them publicly to do that. And so they went out into the field and they won. 22,000 Israelites died that day. And so... um, or 20,000, sorry, not 22,000, 20,000 men died that day. And then um, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth by his hair. So he's hanging there between heaven and earth by his hair, and and then the mule went on, and so he's hanging there. Later, one of the men comes to Joab and tells him this, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to him, "Uh, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Etai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, if I had done what you just said that I should do, you would have hung me out to dry. You would have let me lay there and let that bus run over me a thousand times when David came after me with a vengeance. And so Joab said, I won't waste time like this with you. And so he took three javelins and went out and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then his young men, his armor bearers, 10 of them, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back for pursuing Israel, for Jacob restrained them, which is exactly what Joab said or the people said would have happened had David gone out with them, that they didn't care about anybody but David. As long as they had the trophy, then everything was perfectly okay. And so they urged David not to go for that reason. And so Absalom didn't have counselors that told him not to go. And we see here that he was exactly the prize that Joab wanted. Now, he was the ringleader, certainly. And I'm not blaming Joab in all this, because without him, 20,000 men would not have died that day on the battlefield because of this civil war that absalom had kicked off by claiming himself to be the new king of israel absalom was completely in the wrong there's no other way to say it Uh, but it it comes as a consequence of david not having disciplined his sons along the way and and we've talked about some of that Um, but but absalom had way too high an opinion of himself and, and and then treacherously stole the kingdom away from david and then caused this civil war that cost 20,000 men of Israel their lives. And so then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, who's the priest, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said, no, 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 you're not going to carry any news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. He's already seen David's reaction when a messenger showed up and told him that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, and then David had him put to death because this one came and, and pretended that this was good news to the king. People assume David's going to react in a certain way, but David's a very loyal and faithful guy. And so even with his son who's done hor- horrible things to him, even with Saul who had done horrible things to him, David is very faithful, and, and David uh, worked in those cases, to preserve life. But then what did he do to Uriah, the Hittite, the uh, husband of Bathsheba? He had him put to death, and it cost other men their lives as well. And so uh, Joab knows this is not likely to go well for you, Ahimas, if you go and tell this. So he turns to a guy there who's a Cushite, and, and I don't know if you remember this, but, but after the death of... Um, of Moses' first wife he married a Cushite woman and so the these the, it's been said that they're from Egypt but they're really not it's a longer story than that and so I'll, I'll tell that story another time possibly but but anyway he so Joab turns to the Cushite basically saying you're not an Israelite so so you're more expendable so I'm going to go ahead and send you to take this news to the king and then the Cushite bowed before Joab and then he runs away and then in a couple of minutes Ahimas comes back and he says come what may let me run after the Cushite and Joab said why will you run my son seeing that you'll have no reward for this news and he says come what may I'll run and Joab says run so he did and he ran by the way of the plane and outran the Cushite which would tend to indicate that what he's doing is he's taking a shortcut. Uh, and he knows something the Cushite doesn't know, so he takes off and, and he outruns the Cushite, and he comes back to Mahanaim where where David is awaiting news. And so the the uh, the watchman at at Mahanaim in, in the city is up on the roof, and he sees uh, this man running, and so he tells David, "There's a man running," and, and David says, "If the, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. In other words, he's not coming here to kill me." And so the man drew nearer and nearer, and then the watchman saw another guy running, and, and he said, hey, there's another guy running alone, and David said he also brings news. And then the watchman noticed, and he says, the first one is clearly this guy Ahimaaz of Zadok. So in other words, he was probably a, a well-known messenger, because he, he, he can see by the way he runs that that's who he is. And David said, he's a good man, so he comes with good news. And so he comes to the king and says, all is well, and Blessed be the Lord your God, who has dwelled, who delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, "Is it well with the young man Absalom?" And, and Ahimaaz answers, "When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw great commotion, but I don't know what it was. In other words, I, I, I there was just a lot of noise and ruckus, but I'm not sure what was going on there." So David says, you turn aside and stand right here. And so he stands there and then the Cushite comes and says, good news for my lord, the king, the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said, is it well with the young man, Absalom, which is exactly the same way he phrased it with Ahimaaz. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. So he would wish on enemies and those who rise up against David the, the same fate that Absalom has had, And so the king was deeply moved, went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So even though he's led the revolt against him and the rebellion against him, David's still leaning back and leaning into the relationship that he has with Absalom in the same way that, that Moses or that Abraham does as he goes up the mountain with Isaac. And, and, and Isaac responds and says, My father. And then you can see that that Abraham had distanced himself a little bit from that relationship because he was moving up there to go and do what he had been commanded to do, which is to put him to death and sacrifice him to the Lord. And so when he calls him father, it's at that point that that Abraham is sort of recalled to himself and and calls him son again. And and so that relationship uh, is, is so strong that no matter what, then there's a there's a pain, no matter how much he's revolted against him, and and, and I can I can relate to that, you know, because my son my son's over time, just like I did with my parents, caused me a lot of pain and difficulty, and and sleepless nights, and um, no matter what, they've continued to be my sons. I mean, even if we have to exercise tough love with our children, we still have that same thing. I can remember going on a retreat um, shortly after I came to Asheville. I went on a retreat. With my little network of of guys and our and we were staying at a place at a cabin, and as we got there, I, I was looking at the pictures on the wall, and I said, "Oh my gosh, is this guy? Is this the father of these these young people here?" And, and my network leader said, "Yes, he is." And I said, "I know him, I know them all," and I said, "That guy, and I'm not going to name names, but that guy." was actually w- was sort of the the hero of everybody he was the perfect guy in college he he was a tennis player he was in the be- he was the president of the best fraternity he was a, a brilliant guy and um he had, he had a bible study that was in my room my freshman year actually we met in in my room mine and another guy uh, who is now a, a pastor and the dean of a seminary down in mississippi and um i said this guy was just phenomenal and he said, "Would you mind telling the owner when he comes to see us? Would you mind telling him that?" I said, "No. Why?" And he said, "Because that guy, the son, has been lost for many, many years, like a prodigal son." And and I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Well, he's had a drug problem and all this other stuff, and he hasn't seen him in, in decades now." And I remembered then that they that there was a trip to uh, Oxford actually uh, before his senior year, and he was part of a group that went there, and I can remember speaking with fraternity brothers and friends of mine when they came, who had been on that same trip. And and they said this guy had, he, he the crazy thing was this guy just kind of lost his mind while he was there. and He was a totally different person from that time forward. He back to himself even 40 years later. I was shocked at that. But the father still deeply loved this son who had grieved him and hurt him so much. And so you can understand David's grief at this. Uh, at what's happened even though his son has caused him all of this pain uh, and so we, we're going to skip forward from there we're going to go to the gospel next we're going to finish up with the um, with the epistle which is sort of how the lectionary is designed to be used is because it, it's to give the theology behind everything else and to give the application behind the other lessons and so in, in this john lesson what we've got is jesus has just fed the five thousand. And he says to them, I'm the bread of life. They've they've come to him again the next day and asked him to feed him again. He's refused to do it. He says to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. All the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone that looks to the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus has said, look, I, I'm living a selfless life here. I'm living my life for two different things, for the love of God and for the love of those who are created in his image, my neighbors. And so he came here to say that, that I consider these to be my neighbors. It was a mission of love beginning to end. His love for the Father impelled him to come to save those who were created in the image of the Father. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see Jesus live out those two commandments that he said were the greatest and the second like unto it, and that's the love of God. With all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, he poured out everything for him. He, he, he saw the grief that we, the children of God, the supposed children of God, had caused the one in whose image we were created. He saw the pain and saw the grief of, of fallen humanity, which, it, which had, had failed to live out its mandate, which had failed to, to do anything other than act like creatures. And, and that's the issue that, that, that sort of is supposed to change us from creatures to children of God. It's, it's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working within us to change our attitudes about things. Because one of the things that falls in the garden, the first thing is is, is that the temptation that's posed by the serpent in the garden is, hey, it, it, it looks good, it tastes good, and it gives you something good. So what's keeping you? from eating it. What he's doing is he's encouraging Eve to act like a creature, not one in whom God has breathed a different breath of life and has an immortal soul. He's he's asking it to act at a level below reason. The Because the reason part of, of us sh- is equally fallen. It's the first part that falls because we decide that we can know good and evil from eating fruit. And so the, the, the reason part of us that says god said no therefore i should not is exactly the problem is is that that we'd fail to use our faculties of reason and our faculties of of the way that we relate to god which is different from the way the animal kingdom relates to god and the way the animal kingdom relates to everything that's been created by him and so it's incumbent upon us to to live into a different way and to be different people and so jesus says i'm the one that you need to eat of i'm the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst extraordinary promises but but what he's calling us to is to to live at a different level to not live at the at the at the uh, level of impulse and and to not live at the the level of whatever looks good tastes good and seems good is good No, it's to live at a completely different level. It's to be able to deny ourselves just the way Jesus did and to live our lives as sacrifices so that it's not our own needs that we set highest. It's God's will. And that's exactly what Jesus says. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we're to have the mind of Christ and have that same attitude about our own lives, believing that That there's more to come so much more that we can't even begin to imagine it and so Jesus is is committed to doing the will of the father but the will of the father is a commitment to us though whose he has created in his own image and so after he tells this though the Jews grumbled about him because he said I'm the bread that came down from heaven it's a pretty big claim right I mean because and then they go on to say this is what we know isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? No, 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 we know all these things, but surely they knew the story. Surely they knew the story of Jesus's conception, whether they believed it or not, it's a totally different issue, but but his words would tend to validate that, but they've already rejected that story. And so now they've got to reject what he says that's in line with that because he's believed in his own myth, as it were, in their minds. And so he answers them and says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I mean, Jesus is, is speaking here of the resurrection, obviously. He's, he's going to raise us up. It's not the Father who's going to raise us up. Three different times he says that he will be the agent through which we are raised up at the last day. He's not saying there's multiple ways of being raised up. No, he's pointing to himself completely. I am. And the bread of life, not I and others, but I and the bread of life. And so it, it, he said, it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. This is at one with what he's going to say in John 10, where he's talking about the sheep hearing his voice and they won't respond to the voice of another. He says, if you've been heard and, and learned from the father, if the Holy Spirit's working and active in you, you will come to me because you'll be drawn to me for truth and for life. He says, not that anyone has actually seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. You know, his claims are extraordinary. If you want to have life, he's saying, turn away from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and turn to me. If you want to know good and evil, if you want to, to experience good and evil, come eat the bread of life. And and he's later going to talk about this in, in communion language about whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And both of these are, are anathema to almost everybody on the planet, right? I mean, you you, you don't practice cannibalism and you don't drink human blood. And, and one of the things that, that the apostles will enjoin upon the Gentiles whenever the Gentile mission comes. In, in, in Acts 15, they have a council. And they have to talk about what are we going to require of the Gentiles? And one of those things is they have to abstain from things, things that are strangled and from blood. And the reason is the, the, the life of the thing, whatever it is you're eating, is in the blood of the thing. And so when you drink the blood of the thing, the, the belief in the theological understanding is you take that kind of life into you. And so when Jesus says that you've got to drink his blood, what, what he's saying is you, in order to live, you have to drink this blood. It's the, it's the potion, the, the thing that that enables you to overcome death. You've got to take this blood. And, and like I said, it's a powerful thing, but, it, but it's taking in God's blood, quote unquote, as it were, in a way that, that, that he, he prohibits you drinking from the blood of an animal. And he goes on to say here, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So, so he compares it to the manna, and the manna sustained them for that period that they were in the wilderness, but it didn't bring them eternal life. He said, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So God sends his only son to come and give his life that we might receive life through him, through his flesh and through his blood. And he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And it's interesting because of the contrast between this and the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, right? And it, what Jesus is saying here is, if you eat my flesh, you will surely live. You will surely not die. This is true Bread, true food, true life giving sustenance that leads to eternal life. Jesus is, has laid down his life in order that we might have life, that we might have his life, and that we might have it in us now. It's not just a benefit you get when you die. No, there's a benefit today because the presence of God living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom and gives you life and gives you joy in all circumstances. It allows you to rise above the circumstances, just like it did with Paul, who writes in this epistle, he's writing, remember, when he writes to the Ephesians, he's imprisoned. And so he says, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That same life that that each of us take when we when we take the the bread and the wine and we take the Spirit of God into ourselves is what makes us members one of another because we share a common life it, it it's a powerful thing. There's more to communion than what I receive out of it. What what we get from communion in Jesus is that we are made members one of another in exactly the same way that me and my brothers share the same DNA because we have the same parents. Paul's saying in that same way, you as members of Christ, having taken the body and blood of Jesus— have that same unity with one another because you have the same Spirit. Because there's only one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all, and one Spirit which binds everything together. So we're intended to have the same spiritual DNA as every other Christian on earth through the power of the same Holy Spirit that's been given to each and every one of us. He says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There's nothing wrong with anger per se, but you've got to deal with it, he says. Keep short accounts with one another in love because we're to be bound together in love. We're to present that unity in a way that's organic, it's not just an inorganic unity. It's an organic unity that's to be displayed and to be shown. And it's to be seen and felt and, and, and a place of rejoicing in that unity in the spirit. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. Because that's the thing is the devil is, is the author of division. Division among the saints. And we've got to always be willing to listen and to, and to make ourselves heard. We can't nurse a grudge. We can't nurse something against other Christians or anybody else, for that matter, because Jesus says don't have any enemies, and he says that by way of saying love your enemies. And so then he gives practical advice, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need not being afraid somebody would steal it, but but willingly share it. So this is the same kind of thing that John's telling whenever he baptizes people. And they come to him in the wilderness and they say, what about me? I'm a soldier. What do I do? What about me? I'm a tax collector. What do I do? And John tells them practical ways to live out their occupations as they are. And so so Paul's saying that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're to be a new creation and you're to live in a different way. In fact, you're no longer to steal, you're to be to, to take for yourself. You're to you're to work in order that you might have something to share with others, not take from others. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. <clears throat> but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may be, may give grace to those who hear. And, you know, I I can be certainly guilty of that. I, you know, I can, I can talk about uh, a million different things and enjoy humor and, and, but, but I'm, but it's important. Paul says is that, that we speak those words that are good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And I wonder what percentage of my conversation in any given day actually would qualify Under the definition, Paul says, and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And so what he's saying is, is live according to the Spirit. Don't allow these things to happen and be among you. Because if you're you're living these ways, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. So let bitterness and wrath and anger go and clamor and slander, you know, because gossip is another word for slander here. Be put away from you along with all malice don't have any ill intentions be kind to one another tenderhearted forgiving one another as Christ forgave you and that's an important concept that so many of us miss and 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 we nurse grudges and we we fail to forgive one another but i've mentioned this before there's there, we we talk about the difference between being children of god and creatures of god and I know there are people who take exception to that because they believe that because they were created in the image of God, they're also children of God. No, we're objects of wrath, Paul says, until we come into the Son, into Jesus, and we put our faith in his sacrifice on the cross and and in his resurrection from the dead. So so the way that we deal with one another is different depending on whether we're dealing with brothers or whether we're dealing with those who are outside, And the reason we deal with those outside in a different way is we want to win them to Christ by being Christ-like so that whenever somebody makes a demand of us, strikes us on the face or whatever, if we call those wicked people, then we're supposed to give them more than that. We're supposed to allow them to do that to us because of Jesus, because Jesus did the same thing. And so, but he's, that's in, in uh, Matthew 5, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew 18, he says, when a brother sins against you, confront that. And it's for your good and the brother's. It's so that you might be able to forgive him by confronting the sin, and so that he might see his own sin. And so the way we deal with one another still is tenderhearted, hearted. But it's, it's with an eye towards forgiveness in the same way the cross says you can come to me and you can be forgiven for your sins. I loved you enough to die for you. Don't you think that you could come now and ask me for forgiveness and lay your sins here at the cross that you might receive forgiveness and Holy Spirit that you might be a new creation. And that's what Paul's saying, that we're, that we're to treat one another in that way. But the way we're supposed to treat the world is to lay down our lives and our claims to ourselves and all that we have for the gospel's sake, because that's exactly what Jesus did. It's an imitation of him, and therefore, Paul finishes up with, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So you'd have the same mind of, as Christ because you're a beloved child, as the same as the only begotten Son of the Father. You now have that same spirit enlivening you, live from that spirit, suppress, tamp down discipline that inner man and allow the holy spirit to control your actions and he says walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself for us an offer a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to god and those are the words that that as a priest i would speak to the congregation right when we began to take up the tithes and offerings And, and it's it's a reminder that we don't belong to ourselves and we're here to do exactly what jesus did which was to do the will of the father to do the will of the one who sent us, to love him enough to lay down your claim to your life and to love others enough to lay down your life for their sake.